Uh, we're going to be talking about love this morning, but we're going to be talking about it a little bit differently. We're going to be talking about tenacious love. Tenacious love. And before we dive right into that, I want to read a passage of Scripture. I want to read uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. In the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And when you have it, one of the ways we like to show respect for God's Word here at Pathways, we do like to stand for the reading of His Word. So, would you please stand with me? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And I should tell you that, that the book of Hebrews, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, we don't actually know who wrote it. We just know that it was written well. Uh, <laughs> and that there is, it is a book that is rich with all kinds of meaning. And we're going to be diving into some of that this morning. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, here's what it says. And you'll see why this is a Christmas message right in this passage. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds power over death, that is, the devil. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that we have the opportunity to be here together, to be worshiping you as we've already begun doing this morning, but also, Lord, that we get to look into your word and find truths that we need to be applying to our lives so that our lives function in a manner that you would have it function. And so, Lord God, would you help us to have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. All right, so I mentioned to you that this is, we're calling this one tenacious love. Now, some of you uh, may know what the word tenacious means, but in the event that you're a little unsure as to its meaning, here's what it means. Tenacious, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, persistent in maintaining, adhering to, or seeking something valued or desired. I'll say it again. Persistent in maintaining... Adhering to or seeking something valued or desired. So we bring the idea of tenacious love together. Then we are talking about this persistence in maintaining love, adhering to love or seeking something valued or desired. And that is us. Why? Because we are loved. And that takes us into the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the closest book in the New Testament to being pure doctrine. It's, it's not a devotional read. It is essentially pure doctrine. It is meat. It is deep. It is difficult. We have to wrestle through some of it at times. But it is the closest New Testament book to being pure doctrine. It's written to Christians who have been converted from Judaism uh, and had been Christians for a while. But now they were in danger of kind of falling back into their old ways. And their old systems of doing things. The things that they were comfortable with. Here's an example of what I mean. Um, Pastor Andrew and I and our missions director, Marvin Clausen, had an opportunity to meet with uh, a couple of gentlemen that were involved or are involved in a training school in Moldova. Where they are training people how to understand Islam in order to be able to preach the gospel to Muslims. 
And one of the things he, he told us that a lot of Muslims really struggle with is the idea of when, I become, when they become Muslims, it's hard for them not to just try and incorporate Christianity into their Muslim daily living. That it's easy for them to go back to a system that they were accustomed to because they grew up in it. Rather than coming into full-fledged Christianity that rejects the old and gives them something brand new. Well, the Jews were experiencing the same thing. Judaism had been something they all grew up in and they had been Christians for a while, but now they were in danger of drifting back to their old Judaic ways. And so the writer of Hebrews makes the point throughout the book that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus' covenant is better than the covenant that we had with Moses and so forth. It talks about Jesus being a better high priest, a better sanctuary, all of these things that Jesus is better. And he starts this letter by saying that Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. And you might ask yourself, well, why prophets and angels? Well, because under the Old Covenant, up until the time of Christ's ministry on earth, these were the people that were, or the prophets were people, and the angels were the messengers of God. They were the means by which God would communicate to people on earth as a general rule. They, along with the prophets, like the angels along with the prophets, were God's spokespeople, and as such, were to be heard and to be obeyed. And Jesus is presented as something other, something new, something different, and something better. One much better than angels. Uh, here's what I mean. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 says this. In the past, God spoke to you, spoke to, you to, our, to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had, done, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs." Why is Jesus better than angels? Well, it goes on to say in verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1 that, that he's the only one called the Son. Why is he better? Why is this a bigger deal? Why is this something new that we haven't really seen before in the Scriptures? Is because this now we are hearing that the, what sets him apart above all other things is that he is the Son of God, and through him all things were made. That is different than the prophets and the angels. And so the one who's already been introduced in chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, as the one who created and sustains the universe, has left glory of heaven and come to earth, becoming human being, is a significant part of the story. When we talk about Christmas, when we talk about Advent, again, a lot of us think of that nativity scene. That's a beautiful image that we have within the Christian walk. But the idea of Jesus becoming flesh is much bigger than that. The nativity, that's kind of our perspective. Hebrews chapter 2, that's more God's in heaven's perspective. 
So when we want to understand from, let's see, the heavenly realm's perspective of what was going on at this nativity, what was going on when Jesus came to earth and took on the form of a person, we go to something like Hebrews chapter 2. Or we listen to Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 that Jesus humbled himself and took on the very form of a servant. And so why did Jesus leave heaven and come to earth? Well, if we go back into chapter 2 and we look at verse 9, it's so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, I want you to imagine this story unfolding in heaven, if you could, if there was a way that we possibly could. It's the idea that Jesus says, okay, so I'm going to go down and, and I'm going to taste death so that I can do this for everybody. He came to die, not just for you or for me, but for everyone. So you know that person that just really annoys you? Let's see, at the stoplight? Or the person who's maybe driving a little bit too close behind you? That's just frustrating you? Or the person in the parking lot? I'm sorry, I'm just talking about shopping at Christmas right now. <laughs> but how about that person that you just clash with? Their personality is like sandpaper to you. Or that person that did something so horrific that you're not sure that you would be able to deal with them if you came to them face to face. He died for everyone. In the process, bring God's grace to all of mankind. Look, he... We, t we read this, and it's one of our favorite passages of Scripture, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. So he did this for everyone. Now, you might be saying, Rob, I know this. Okay, well, that's great. It's good that you know this. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Hebrews chapter 2 so that when we get to the conclusion, there's something really important that I want us all to walk away with. It says, for it was fitting for him to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. And it's not that Jesus needed to be perfected. It was the idea that it was proven. It was the idea that it was complete, what he was doing. is the right thing for God to do was to send Jesus to earth to endure suffering so that he might become the author of our salvation. And the word author, uh, some of your translations might say pioneer. It's the idea that he initiated this. And that language is all over Scripture. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the notion of His initiating of things. And so the word author means to, to lead or to be prince. He is the one to show us the way to salvation. Verse 9 says, Because suffering of death, He was crowned with glory and honor. Because Jesus was willing to suffer and die for us, He was crowned with glory and honor. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 say this way, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that by the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess, right, that Jesus is Lord. In verse 10 we're given one of the reasons that helps us understand the backdrop a little bit is that in bringing many sons to glory, verse 10 says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom, for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he had suffered. This is the grand plan. This is the mystery, as Paul calls it. 
for you and for me to be brought into glory, into the presence of God, that we might enjoy that eternal experience with Him, that eternal bliss in heaven. In John 12, Jesus, He's in Jerusalem. It's a very short time before His, his death. And He's speaking to His apostles. And then in verse 32, he says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And so because Jesus died, he was resurrected, and now returned to glory at the right hand of God, the Father, you and I have hope for eternal life and glory. That's sort of heaven's perspective on what was taking place. I mean, things were rough down here on earth, and they still are. But heaven's perspective was that Jesus came, chose to become one of us. And so when we sing any songs that has the name Emmanuel in it, that means God with us. That is the language from heaven at this point, that God soul of the world, that he sacrificed himself, but before that sacrifice, before that took place, he became one of us. That was the grand plan. He chose to share in our humanity and be one of us. God became human in Jesus Christ, and this is known as the incarnation. Now, the, in, the word incarnation you're not going to find in the Bible anywhere. It's a Latin word that describes a biblical principle, so it's okay to use it. But it's not a biblical word, and it just simply means in the flesh. In the flesh. Jesus is the eternal God who became flesh and blood. Jesus became a man at a point in history. And he did so without giving up his oneness with God. He became a human being without a sin nature. In flesh means more than Jesus just had a physical body. It means more than that. It means that he had a complete human personality. And we sometimes forget that. Like we sometimes forget that Jesus was fully man and fully God, and we have a tendency to just focus on the fully God part, but we forget the fully man part. Like how about this? How many of you, when you were little kids, had your parents have to explain to you how to avoid danger? Anyone? Okay, so some of your parents just said, go into danger, you're good. Like just cross that street whenever you feel like it, no burglaries, right? Theron still, to this day, talks about Janet bringing him to the edge of the driveway and explaining to him these very simple words. If you go onto the road, you might die, and I can't make another one of you. <laughs> he still remembers that. It haunts him to this day. His nightmares about stepping off driveways. Jesus was fully human, and so when he was really little, he skinned his knees. Like, imagine that. As a toddler, he would have fallen down and would have skinned his knees. Perhaps he would have caught a cold. Perhaps. He was certainly fed as an infant, and he grew. As a matter of fact, Luke 2.52 tells us that this is the last statement we hear about Jesus' young age. He's about 12 years old at the time that the statement is made. And the statement is, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and among men. He grew. Fully man. Fully God. In the flesh means that he had a complete human personality. 
And in that completeness, verse 11 tells us that for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Think about that for a moment. So because of Jesus and his sacrifice, we're brought into this family of God. We are adopted into this family. And so we are sons and daughters of God, which means we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. And it tells us here, and this is something I was talking about with a men's group that I, I hang out with. It says here, like, think about this. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed. Let me ask you. How many times in your life have you thought of Jesus and his perspective of you of one, as one of being shame? It isn't. I mean, think about that. He is not ashamed to call you a brother, you a sister. Not ashamed. And in the event that you're wondering, if you're in your mind somewhere along the way, you're saying something to the effect of, but Rob, you don't know what I did. You're right. I don't. He did. He knows exactly every detail of your life and says, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. I want you to have that echoing in your head. I'm not ashamed of you. Not ashamed. Jesus is our brother because we have the same father. Verse 11 tells us, for, again, right? We go into this. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason? He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I brothers and sisters because we share the same father. He is our brother because... We have the same Father, but also because we have shared experience. Verse 14, it reads, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also took part of the same. And so the, reflecting back to the writer's assertion that Jesus is better than angels is the fact that no angel ever became flesh. No angel was ever defined as the Son of God. No angel ever became a blood human being. But Jesus did. He was first born like many other human beings. He grew to adulthood just like any other human being. He grew tired. He was hurt from time to time. I, I suspect that he had an, the whole gamut of emotions that we all experience. He was probably just better at handling them than we are. But he bled like any other human being. And so if we have this perspective of Jesus, who, through whom everything is created, and that by His power the entire universe, the entire universe is sustained, why did Jesus choose become human? Verse 14 tells us that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Both physical and spiritual death were introduced to the world when Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation in the garden. Death became the devil's own tool to bring eternal destruction 
to all humanity. And then Jesus came and became our brother. He shared our life experiences and he shared our death experience. The difference is that Jesus did not stay dead. The bonds of death couldn't hold him. He broke free. He was resurrected from the dead, destroying forever the power of death which the devil wielded against us. And when Jesus destroyed the power of Satan, verse 15 says, He set us free. As a matter of fact, verse 15 reads, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus defeated Satan by using the weapon of death, and he paid the penalty of sin by giving his life and set us free from the curse of death. And by paying this penalty for us, Jesus took the weapon of death out of Satan's hands. Jesus took away the fear of death. Now, I'm going to bring you back to that title of our message. Tenacious love. The idea of hanging on to something that was desired. Anyone hearing in this message so far that Jesus lacks desire for you? He has a tenacious love for you. He hangs on to it with a grip that sustains the universe. He has a tenacious love for you. Verse 16 adds, For assuredly he does not give, up, give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And so you and I have a privilege beyond con comparison and even beyond comprehension. We have received a gift of God through Jesus Christ that not even angels have received. And the context of this, you should know, is in reference to fallen angels, actually. And so we, as descendants of Abraham, as descendants of Adam and Eve, we are a fallen people. There are fallen angels. We receive help. They don't. They don't. Jesus broke the bonds of sin and death, not for angels, but for the descendants of Abraham. And the writer here is saying that the one whom Jesus has helped is that one who has faith in God through his son Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham, either physically or by faith. Because by faith, we are all descendants of Abraham. And it tells us also that this needed to happen for him to become our high priest. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. Jesus was not part God and part human. He was all God and all human. And he had become human so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the concept of Jesus as high priest is mentioned really only in the book of Hebrews. We have Jesus with what you would call a high priestly prayer in John 17, where he prays for the people. He actually prays for you and for me in John 17. Because he talks about those who will yet believe. That's us. So Jesus prayed for you. The concept of Jesus as our high priest is mentioned only really in the book of Hebrews. It's introduced here, but it's expanded on from now until chapter 9. 
And the duties of the high priest require him to enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and officiate at the ceremony of the two goats, where one goat, the scapegoat, is sent into the wilderness. And the idea is that all the sins of the people are placed on that goat and it runs off. And the other is slain to make atonement for the sanctuary. The high priest alone could make the atonement for the sins of the people. The priests and his own house. Jesus as our high priest makes atonement for our sins, but instead of sacrificing an animal that was only a temporary sacrifice. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus' sacrifice is a better sacrifice. And in his sacrifice, instead of sacrificing an animal, he sacrifices himself and becomes the perfect sacrifice. Verse 18 tells us that for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's Hebrews 4.15. It elaborates on the statement actually. How encouraging is the thought that whatever distress or temptation we experience, Christ has full and perfect knowledge of it and what to do in it. Hebrews 4.16, sort of the action statement. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Every single thing about this is about Jesus' heart towards us. That tenacious love of the Son and the Father for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, member of the Godhead, the one who was there when the world was created, the one who sustains the universe by His power, loves you. That, that's what this tenacious Advent love is. The Son of God, member of the Godhead, the one who was there when the world was created, the one who sustains the universe by His own power, loves you. And so here's what we then know. And I'll end on these next few statements. I know. It's like, Rob, it's a short one. It's okay. This is what I know. God is not my enemy. Do you know that? That God is not your enemy? He is my Father who loves me. God is not my enemy. He is my Father who loves me. And He does not need to prove His love for me through healing, through alleviation of pain, through financial prosperity, or towering achievements. His love was proven in Christ. No other demonstration of His love is necessary for us. Let me say it this way. The cradle and the cross are proof enough of His love for us. The cradle and the cross are proof enough of His love for us. What a precious gift He's given us. His only Son. What a costly gift to give. He gave, he gave him up to the cross and he gave him for the world, for rebels, for people who didn't know him, for people who didn't want him. Here is love. 
Here's how much you are loved. Do you feel it? Do you know it? This is Bethlehem love and Calvary love. It is the love that Jesus Christ still bears for us today, here and now. So how should we respond? Well, again, I'll go back to Hebrews 4.16 because I think it's an amazing statement for us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in the time of need. Here's what this means. Almighty God, creator of all things, loves us so much that he sent his son. And in the sending, we have a God who experienced everything that we experience here on earth. He was born, he grew, he suffered, he died. See, that's not where the story ended. He rose. And he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us. You know what that means? That he is talking to the Father on your behalf every moment. He is talking to the Father on your behalf at every moment. He's not ashamed of you. Not ashamed to call you a brother. Not ashamed to call you a sister. And when we walk through Hebrews chapter 2 and we understand that, what we then understand is that God isn't our enemy. He is not against us. He is for us. 100%. He is for us. And the cradle and the cross are the only examples that we need to look at for the proof of His love for us. And when we understand this, we are then able to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We can come to Him so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There is nothing in this that talks about him with a big hammer sitting up in heaven waiting for you to sin so he could just beat you down. As a matter of fact, what he proves is that he chose to beat down sin so that we could have access to him. That's what it proves. The cradle and the cross of Christ are, the proof, are proof enough for his great love for us. How do we respond? We approach his throne of grace with confidence. You guys, Christmas is absolutely about the nativity. It's an important scene. We love the songs and we love the imagery and we love the movies. And these are great. But more importantly, the bigger deal there, he became one of us so that we could dwell with him. You catch that? He became one of us, died a sinless death, rose again three days later so that we could be one with him. The cradle and the cross of Christ are proof enough of his love for us. I'm going to pray. Before I do that, I want to remind everybody that immediately following the service today, we are doing our deacon elections. And so we need to do all that voting stuff to make sure we got people uh, on board who are able to serve in our, the context of our community here in ways that are going to be amazing. So let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that the cradle and the cross 
Your cradle and cross are all we need for proof of your love for us. We thank you that there's a tenacity in your love for us in that you were so desiring us, so desiring us that you left heaven to come to earth. Lord, we don't always understand what that means. We don't always understand how to relate to it. But Lord, if we could just get a glimpse of that, the idea that from Hebrews 2 and 1 and 2, Lord, that this perspective of eternity and that you're, you hold in your hand the universe and sustain it. And you then chose to dwell in it to save us. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that we will have a bigger perspective on what it means to think about Emmanuel, God with us, to think about what it means for you to have become one of us so that we can have access to you. Amen.